0: Almighty God, we beseech you to resurrect our brains this Easter day, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> As many of you know, I recently conducted a funeral for a Grove City College student named Hans Turner. He was only 21 years old when he died. It wasn't my first funeral, I have conducted many funerals over the years and have made it fairly steadily through the services. Uh, But there was a moment that left my heart cloven in two. Uh, Right before the casket was lowered into the ground, I broke down. Hans had over a dozen nieces and nephews there, and right before the casket was lowered one by one, they approached it, The casket was, of course, closed, but through the crack that was between the lid and the base, every one of them placed notes inside before it was lowered down. And at that point, I lost it because, frankly, for me, for a variety of reasons, that was just too much to see. I learned only later that these were not goodbye notes. They were can't-wait-to-see-you-again notes inscribed with Crayolas and Resurrection Hope. That's where we are today. We are people who are steadied by a very reasonable expectation that there is something that lies beyond and that we can have a share in it. Well, St. Paul was captivated and obsessed uh, with The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he believed that there were many present day consequences to that historic event. And he writes to us in the first chapter of his letter to the Colossian Christians. And I'd like to speak about just the first few verses, but he writes about these consequences of resurrection, namely about lofty things, that we have a lofty Christ, and now a lofty mind, and a lofty station. That's what I'm talking about this morning. The lofty Christ, the lofty mind, and the lofty station. And then I want to conclude by telling you about a dream I had last Wednesday at 3 (laughs) a.m. But that's later. All right. The lofty Christ. Please open your bulletins as we dig into the Word of God. Paul writes, If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The Greek is better. It's since then, you have been raised with Christ. It's far more definitive. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. From the earliest days of Christianity, believers had a brontosaurus-sized understanding of Jesus. They thought he was noble, but more than noble. They thought he was a prophet, but more than a prophet. They thought he was a teacher, but more than a teacher. He uh, superseded everyone who had ever lived, everybody who came before him. The idea was that the risen Jesus had no copycats, either living or dead. He was superior to them all. And the evidence for his superiority was, in fact, his resurrection. His teachings were amazing and insightful. He had wisdom that broke through intellectual and existential log jams. He was able to offer cures that restored people for 20, 30 years. All of that together was not weighed as heavily as his resurrection. The resurrection was something new in history. People might say, wait a minute, there were other people within the biblical record who were dead and were raised to life. That is quite true in the Old and New Testaments. Here's the difference. Those miracles were resuscitations, they were not resurrections. Resuscitation is when you are brought back to life, but then later you die again. It's still a beautiful miracle, but it's a miracle with a shelf life. The resurrection, on the other hand, is when you bounce back and you never die. You bounce back invincible. You become fully, and enduringly human for all time. And that's what happens to Jesus. He is the first one to have experienced this kind of new life within the old world. A risen, fully alive, never dying being. And so Christ, to quote T.D. Jakes, is in a class all by himself. You have to admit that was a pretty good T.D. Jakes impression, if you know who he is. Not who cares. Um, but this is Paul's point, and it's his point right from the opening chapter of the letter to the Colossians that Jesus is the risen man, but more than a risen man, he is the risen God-man. He has offered something and embodies something completely unique within the human story, and that's why in chapter 1, Paul writes this. Remember, this was written in 50 AD, like very, very early on in the Christian movement. Paul writes, "...for in him, in Jesus, the risen Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This was written in Caesar's territory. Paul is saying that the risen Jesus is more powerful than any Caesar Caesar that ever was or will be, any president that ever was or will be, any you that ever was or will be. Jesus has supremacy because of his godness and his resurrection, which validated publicly his divinity. And so in our chapter, in chapter 3, we note right from the start that Jesus breaks every glass ceiling that has ever existed. He has risen, and not only risen, he seats at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is enthronement language. He is placed in the seat of power. To be at the right hand of a ruler meant that you were their vice regent. You were the one who carried out the decrees. And here we have Jesus sitting in that place of power, Uh, in the place of highest authority. And that means that our highest authority in this room and in this world is not a creditor. It is not an author. It's not a billionaire. It's not Twitter. It's not a flag. It's not social media platforms. It is the butchered and raised son of God who knows no rival. I find that much of my own anxiety and panic in life, and maybe yours too, comes from mistaking the occupier of the throne. When we mistake the occupier of the throne, we freak out because we think the universe is coming undone. The universe isn't coming undone because there is somebody who sits atop it and he's doing just fine. We have a risen, ascended God-man. So we have a lofty Christ. That's where Paul begins. You've been raised with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. And out of this theology, Paul makes some deductions, and one of them is you can have a resurrected brain. You need a resurrected brain. You need a brain that works differently than the brain that was given to you by birth. You need to have a new conception of reality, and that is in part what the resurrection does for you. This is in verse 2, regarding the lofty mind. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. Notice Paul's insistence that we get our minds right. You know, the Bible considers the mind, that is the part of us which reasons, discerns, perceives, to be a veritable powerhouse. If you have your mind set on something, if your mind is right, you can probably accomplish it. The scriptures are rich in language of mindfulness. Uh, Consider the summary of the law in the Old Testament, that we are to love God with all our hearts, all our souls, and all our minds. Consider the word repentance, uh, because it shows us the importance of the mind. How so? Because in Greek, the word repentance is metanoia, which quite literally means you change your mind. Before you change your behavior, you have to have some sort of internal perceptive change. Also, the transformation of behavior and patterns in our lives is completely dependent upon a changed mind. We know this from Romans 12. In Romans 12, Paul writes, be transformed by the renewing of your what? Minds. You have to have that right before your behavior gets right. You have to perceive the world rightly in order to engage in the world rightly. And the New Testament says that our spiritual battle in this life involves mindfulness. That's why in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, take every thought captive to Christ. Because if you don't take your thoughts captive, you sure aren't going to take your behavior captive. It has to begin internally. And so this is the message. If the mind, that is our perception, the way we think about life, if our interpretive framework is right, much of life is set in the right direction. And so Paul sees Christians as having a new opportunity for evolution, that we can evolve cerebrally that we can make some progress internally, that we don't have to live with an old, sick mindset that is all about cynicism and degradation and complaining and blame, we can actually begin to perceive the world in a different way, in a resurrected sort of way. Uh, We can outgrow some of those early mindsets. Because everybody in this room, certainly me included, has a faulty way of perceiving the reality that causes us to act in dysfunctional and sabotaging ways. We, as Christians, just like everybody else, we were born with an inherited mental framework with all sorts of ideas that were given to us by our age, by our families, by our biology, by our education. And what Paul is saying is, that's all really interesting, but you need a risen brain. You need a risen brain. There's this wonderful woodcut of the Roman goddess Minerva, who's the goddess of wisdom. And in the woodcut, she is laying a very a gentle hand on the head of a ferocious lion. But the ferocious lion is tamed by the influence of wisdom. And that's what the resurrected brain is like. When the risen hand, the wounded hand of Christ, touches your scalp, you begin to have new thoughts about things, about yourself, about your eternity, about God, and about other people, because you have been touched by a wisdom that supersedes your own and comes to you from the outside. Well, that's part of resurrected power. That's how an earthly mind can be reshaped by the mind of heaven. I find that earthly minds, earthly minds don't know what to do with Easter. Resurrected minds do. But earthly minds don't know what to do with Easter because earthly minds have very hard and fast assumptions about death, right? That either it's, it's the terminus and there's nothing afterward, or if there is something afterward, the only way that you access it is that you're good enough. Both seem pretty devastating to me, if you have any degree of, you know, Um, (laughs) self-awareness at all. Uh, So what's fascinating is that the world, I don't think, can handle a, a risen Jesus. So they can handle a risen Jesus if he's not too risen. For example, many people can believe in Jesus' risenness in our minds. People want to sequester the risen Jesus in your brain. Well, clearly he dies in history, he's buried, he's forgotten. But it's important that his ideals continue to reframe our thinking. I agree that his ideals reframe our thinking, but it's only because that is built on the substructure of something that actually happened in reality, right? Some people get all subjective and sort of emotional and squishy, and they say, well, as long as the risen Jesus, whatever that means, influences your feelings and makes you feel a little better about life. That's really neat, but not if it's not built on the substructure of history, like, then then it's just one idea of, of, among others, or one emotion, one feeling, set of feelings among others. Other people get all hippie and, like, naturalistic, and they're like, well, the reason Jesus is sequestered in, like, the realms of nature. And so just as we see, like, magnolia trees bloom, that's sort of Jesus, because... While he died and was buried and nothing else happened, we have magnolia trees. And that's nice. And nature has rhythms and patterns and things begin again. Just like hope can be... Uh, yeah, really interesting. But not if it's not built on a substructure of something that actually happened. And that's why I include in your bulletin, though don't look at it now because you'll get distracted, a poem by John Updike, who says that if he rose again... At all, it had to be his body. Let us not mock God with metaphor, transcendence, sidestepping, analogies, making of the event a metaphor. Instead, let us walk through the actual door to an actual risen Jesus. And so the lofty mind begins to think differently because that lofty mind is founded upon a lofty Christ who really died and really rose again. But all of our lofty thoughts are dependent upon the legitimacy of that resurrection. So we can have a lofty mind in which we perceive life differently. We can look at Jesus and say, say, that is a man who rose again. And because he rose again, everything else in reality is forever different and forever changed. Lastly, we have a lofty station. This is verse 3. The text reads, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's quite a rude thing that Paul tells people who are quite alive that they're quite dead. Um, But this is his point, that as you live, a part of you really is gone forever. What is that part? Your idiosyncratic selves, which once belonged to a terminal age with all of its hostility to God. All of that has been declared dead. Those selves are as dead as Christ was on his funeral day. It's all over. But there's something positive, too that your truest selves have been, well, they've reached their destination. They've been saved and saved entirely, held, hugged, and hidden in Christ. Isn't that a lovely image? Like you're being embraced to the degree where you were subsumed into the Messiah. And that is the safest place you could ever be, right? This was now popular a few years ago where they were thinking about safe spaces in colleges whenever you were really stressed by an exam. You would like go into this closet where they had coloring and stuffed animals? I'm not dissing that for a second. I totally want one of those. Only I want video games and I want caramel popcorn. And then I would be happy. That is my safe space. But this is the safest space of all. Because you essentially are being connected to the one who has died and is alive forevermore. And as said, I'm sharing with you my death and resurrection. You now belong to me and belong to me forever. You are now in the loftiest and safest place. The highest of stations. And so our new station is this undying realm that we truly belong there. It is our truest country. The United States is not your truest country. It's a great place for a while, sometimes. right? I don't know. It depends on the day. It gets weird. But we are ultimately citizens of this heavenly kingdom which has come to invade. It is this place to which we belong, and he has made us royalty within it. Maybe some of you have seen the film King Ralph from 1991 with John Goodman I hope that you have it's hysterically funny it's about a british royal family and there's about you know 700 of them and they're all taking a picture in front of one of the the british palaces And they're all there in the wet grass. But what they don't realize is that an electrical cord to the camera is running through the wet grass. There's some sort of problem with it. When the photographer takes a picture, the entire royal family is electrocuted and killed. I shouldn't be laughing, but it's a funny scene. Anyway, so they're all dead. And they have to find one living descendant who happens to be a professional or near-professional bowler named Ralph who lives in New Jersey. Right? And so he instantly becomes the King of England. And, his enti- and in the entire film, it's all about him adjusting from being a womanizing, beer swilling bowler into the monarch who rules the British Empire. It's fascinating. But that is, friends, in a sense, what has happened to us. God has taken you with all of your pathologies and questionable t- tastes in churches, and um, and he <laughs> brings you all, brings you all into the bosom of heaven where you are grasped and held and never let go. You are now in the loftiest station with the risen Jesus. That's where you truly belong and where you are headed. Now, our minds need to readjust to that station because that station is our new reality. And that new station can begin to define how we think about this life and the next. Because it means that death is not a terminus for you. It is not over. It also means that however you get into the next realm, it's not based on your rap sheet or how successful you've been. Instead, it's based on the le- legitimacy of another who died and rose again. But there is something coming, something next. We belong there already, and we're walking towards it, this new lofty station in which we will finally be people who see, not just have faith, but sight. I have a friend who was a rector in New Jersey at a very beautiful historic parish and had one of those houses with like nine bedrooms, you know, back in the day when clergy were like hyper rich. And she inherited this house, and and there was a graveyard right outside the front door, and it was quite a juxtaposition because the house was beautiful. The porch, I kid you not, was covered in wisteria, looked like something out of a novel. And yet, right outside the door was a graveyard littered with broken tombstones, and they were doing some repairs on the tombstones one time when I was visiting, and the rector spoke to one of the people who was doing the recovery work of the tombstones, And he said, it really must distress you that as soon as you walk out of the door every single day, you're reminded of death. And the rector said, well, it would. But we know it doesn't end there. She was granted an Easter brain. And so she was able to rethink reality. And so I I say this to you today. I'm speaking to risen royalty. Everybody here. Risen royalty. Because you are not destined for the terminus of death. You will endure for you are already stationed with Christ. Uh, This is a gift, you know. This is who we are. This is where we belong. This is an act of God upon you. This is what God has done in the risen Christ, brought you to this lofty station. I said this at the Christmas Eve service, and I thought it was good enough to say it at Hans's funeral, and I will now say it again to all of you. It's the very simple message of this passage that God saves us. In the end, God saves us always. God does not deny the gift of salvation to anyone who wants it. The grace of salvation is the most beautiful thing there is. We are complex. We love vanity and sin. We love deprivations and wickedness. And so we often conclude that God has abandoned us Or that God does not like us. But God does not always stop our hand from plunging into sin. And God does not always correct every single one of our weaknesses. But here's what he does do. He saves us. In the end, God saves us. No matter what, God saves us. And the resurrection is proof that God saved us. So that is a lofty Christ who gives us a lofty mind and a new lofty station. We have access to one who is greater than Minerva, a risen Christ who has placed a pierced hand on our heads and brains, who can influence how we think about ourselves, our ultimate future, and the future of every other image-bearer. Now, the dream. The 3 a.m. Wednesday morning dream. I have to tell you about it. It really happened. 3 a.m. is when I woke up from this dream. Uh, I was dreaming so vividly that I was shaken from sleep, and then I did something very dangerous. I jostled my wife from sleep <laughs> in order to tell her about it. She was particularly gracious, though. It was an Easter miracle. <laughs> I will try to make it through this next little bit without breaking down. Um, I don't remember my dreams very often. And I don't put all my stock in them. But this dream was different and deeply moving, and it will never leave me. Uh, So I was dreaming about all of you, actually, at this massive picnic at a park in Zillian which is near where I grew up. It's about a half hour south of here. Uh, And I remember that the sun was setting, and I remember there was more food than any human or group of humans could consume. And it was all like our best homemade dishes. And there were tons of children there being insane and wild and fun. And everybody was laughing and satiated and happy. And then we were joined by other people. There were others, some of whom we haven't seen for far too long. People from this church who have passed on to the other side. I saw their faces. I saw Hans and heard his, like, calm, subdued laughter. Geraldine with her sweet-spirited kindness. Lisa Welker with her beaming smile. Gary Beck with his delightfully awkward humor. Ken Carter, who was holding, I remember, a sorbet ice cream cake. He loved to make those back in the day. And lastly, there was Rick Grossman fifth-generation farmer who died two years ago from an aggressive cancer. He looked so remarkably well and strong with good color, dressed in his old farmer flannel, but a little cleaner than it used to be. <laughs> and I remember I was so speechless when I saw him, and I, I was aghast. I, and I eventually like walked over to him, and I, I clutched both of his arms, and I asked him, is, is this real? Is it real? And he just laughed and he said, Seems to be. <laughs> Classic Rick Form. And I was totally dumbstruck. But I remember asking, I said, Whoa, like, what is it? What is it? What is it like? What's it like? Meaning, you know, the stuff that comes next. Well, he paused. He looked down. And then he looked up and then with this smiley, teary glance, he said, it's even better than you think. And at that point, I woke up and I told my wife. (laughs) Friends, because Christ is risen, we will never be lost. And risenness can help us right now as we await for that new ageless home. A home that is even better than we think. Amen. Yeah. They took your life. They couldn't